and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Health on 2SER and around Australia via the Community Radio Network. Chlamydia is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the country, with more than 70,000 notifications of the infection in 2016 alone. These statistics come from the Kirby Institute's latest paper looking at the state of Australia's sexual health. But unlike other sexually transmitted infections such as gonorrhea and hepatitis, the symptoms of chlamydia aren't easily recognisable. And when it comes to treating the long-term effects of the infection, our current treatments are falling short. From tomorrow, the Australian Chlamydia Conference will bring together human health, animal and wildlife researchers with a focus on the infections and disease caused by chlamydia – and look at why the rates of infection are rising across the country. Hi, Jake. I'm Dr Willa Houston. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney. Hi, Jake. I'm Dr Gary Myers. I'm an associate professor at uh, UTS. Over the last 10 years or so, the chlamydia numbers, particularly in young people, our youth, has almost doubled. And so chlamydia is still on the increase. It might be settling a little bit, but it's still a massive epidemic that we really have to be concerned. And why are we seeing it increase? Because it's largely asymptomatic. So most young people or any people who have the infection, most of them won't realise they have any symptoms. So they have to, for some reason, actively seek out a sexual health checkup or their GP has to prompt them the next time they come in. And so often that doesn't happen. And so whilst they're still infectious, they're actually infecting more individuals. And we know that while we're trying to get better at testing and treating and we are increasing the number of tests, the chlamydia is keeping ahead of us. And so when it's asymptomatic and it takes the you going to a physician or getting your sexual health checkup, the physical symptoms aren't showing. But I imagine that there's still stuff going in the body as you carry the infection. Absolutely. And that's actually the big issue with uh, this asymptomatic infection is that the consequences of that infection are not felt for a decade, two decades down the line. And it's disproportionately affecting women because... The consequences of an apogenital infection leads to infertility, pelvic pain leading to infertility. And that's the, the big issue with these chlamydial infections, is that uh, it just takes so much time for the consequences to become apparent. And what is scarring as a result of with chlamydia? That's one of the biggest asymptomatic symptoms mm-hmm. you, might, you might find. What, in fact, causes that scarring? It's the immune response, the human immune response. It's a, an extreme overreaction of the immune response to this bacteria. And the big thing about the bacteria, chlamydia uh, specifically, is that it, it's what we call an obligate intracellular bacteria. It only lives inside a human cell. When it's outside of uh, a cell, it's in a, uh, what we, essentially a spore. It, it's only there to get into other cells. And so that means that much of the human immune response, which in most bacterial infections clear that infection, the fact that chlamydia hides out inside a cell means that 
most of the human immune response can be ignored. But the ultimate uh, result of that is that the immune response thinks of a chlamydial infection as a wound, and the reaction of the body to a wound is to start laying down collagen, and those products are in themselves inflammatory. So you get this long-term inflammation aided and abetted by the immune response, and the the result is uh, a scar, and it's a scar in the wrong place, whether if you have chlamydial infection in the eye when you have trachoma, it's a, a scar in the eyelid, the eyelashes turn in, and it's the abrasion of the eyelashes against the cornea that lead to the blindness. In the same context, the uh, women who have scarring uh, in the upper genital tract, uh, particularly in the fallopian tubes, you end up with a, a physical blockage. There's no therapies at the moment to ameliorate the scarring, and it's not sure if there ever will be because of the complexity of this. With chlamydial infection, it's better not to get it in the first place, and in that context, probably the most important thing we can do is to improve uh, diagnosis and perhaps also to identify people who are more likely to have a scarring outcome. Oh, so some people are more predisposed We think. We haven't haven't proven this, but there's plenty of opportunity where individual variation is likely to feed into these presumptive feedback loops. At this point, typically, how do we go about treating chlamydia? The current treatment regimen is a single dose, one gram of azithromycin, and that's generally quite effective. Infected people sometimes get offered doxycycline. It's a seven-day dose of oral antibiotics. And as long as they comply and take all the doses, that can also be quite effective. But we're actually starting to understand that treatment is more complex than we thought, that there is treatment failure occurring. It's not like the superbug story that we're hearing with other bugs where there's lots of antibiotic resistance. This is not a story like that. This is a story of complexity of treatment and the complexity of the microbes. We don't see classic resistance in chlamydia so far. That's partially to do with, you know, the different sites of the body that chlamydia infects. So, you know, in men who have sex with men um, or people who engage in anal sex, regardless of their sexuality, we see rectal infections. We have to treat those more carefully, certainly with doxycycline, we think. And it may be that we're seeing a little shift in where we treat and how we treat. Right. So not one solution fits all in this scenario. That's right. And what might some of those different forms of treatment look like in the future? Well, at the moment, we're really going to stick with um, azithromycin and doxycycline. We have limited other options, actually. There's not very many other antibiotics that are effective against chlamydia. So at the moment, it'll have to be new therapies being developed. And there's lots of reasons why we need to look at new therapy development for chlamydia, because it's so common. It's the most common bacterial STI. We're often treating in the presence of other, even more risky STIs that we don't recognize that are there, like genitalia, mycoplasma genitalium now, we think, whether or not it's even more risky. It's another interesting little bacteria that's probably a a risk factor for some pelvic inflammatory disease and some other diseases, and we know even less about it. We're getting better at testing for both at once, but we often presumptively treat for chlamydia. So there's a general consensus in the STI field that we need to think about how we treat chlamydia. And so you mentioned before that chlamydia not only affects in the genital tract area, but too in the eyes, something that you do see exhibited amongst particular animal species like koalas. How much is applicable from an animal setting then into what happens with humans? Do you see crossovers in this research? So the research, the concepts, the processes we're understanding all cross over so much. And there's so much cross-fertilization of knowledge and understanding between the two fields that they're really not that independent anymore. So they are different chlamydial species. 
that we see in, in different animals and in humans. And even in humans, there's actually a pneumonia form of chlamydia that we sometimes see. Uh, so there's a lot of species. But in fact, the basic principles of how they do their microbiology, where they grow, how they infect, how they spread, the different forms that they assume, and even some elements of the way that the host reacts, so that immunology that Gary was talking about in terms of the, the tissue damage, we even think that some of that is potentially occurring in some of the animals we see with chlamydia as well. So the two fields are really almost parallel fields, and they've learnt a lot from each other, in it, and that's one of the reasons for getting us all together, actually, is we all learn a lot of each other. Because you speak of chlamydia as a species. Uh, so chlamydia is... is if we want to be geeky about taxonomy, so chlamydia is actually the genus, and then the species are things like chlamydia trachomatis is the species, chlamydia pneumoniae, chlamydia pecorum is the one that we're most concerned about in our koalas. And so, yeah, when we talk about the species, we're really just using it to cluster together. Even within those species, there's a lot of diversity about the tissue and the pathogenesis, actually. And so chlamydia trachomatis, that's the an STI, so it's sexually transmitted infection. Is the entire chlamydia genus under that umbrella of sexually transmitted no. infection. No, no. They need, they're all under the umbrella of being obligate intracellular, so they have to live inside their host cells, and when they're outside the host cells, they can't do much except transmit. And so you were talking about the crossovers in terms of how it might form or how it might respond. In terms of treatment, are there any crossovers there? I imagine if you're trying to treat chlamydia that is present amongst a koala's eyes as opposed to someone who might you know, have scarring as a result of chlamydia, is there much that you can learn from that as well? Well, in fact, it's it's interesting that you raise treatment. So actually treatment in animal settings and in koalas, for example, as well as in livestock is much less understood. We actually have difficulties treating animals like koalas because of their gut microbiota. So treatment for koalas is really important to get right. It's Chlamydia is a really serious problem for koalas along with tree loss and wild dogs. And in livestock, really, there isn't at this point a great drive to do a lot of treatment. I think ultimately across the fields, vaccinology, so developing vaccines, will probably be the most cost-effective and effective solution. But we're still a long way off that being rolled out publicly and we don't even have – we've got a few candidates, particularly in the US and here in Australia in the koala, that are being tested and have been through field studies or early clinical trials. But at the moment, it's pretty early days for vaccines. We've still got to look after the public health problem in the meantime. I mean, the big problem with the vaccines, which people have been trying them since the 60s and they've all failed – and the reason why they failed is because the disease pathology is a human immune response. And a vaccine is designed to elicit a human immune response, teasing out the factors that lead to the adverse immune responses versus the immune response where it leads to protective immunity. That's been the hard part of the last 40, 50 years. If we make a vaccine for a human, it's not necessarily going to do much for a koala, you mean? Exactly that as well. Yeah. But, but also the fact that given that scarring is caused by the human immune response, we need to figure out which parts of the chlamydial outer membrane and its components are actually causing that, and can we prevent that? What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures.
And so you were talking there, Willa, about, you know, the animal burden of something like chlamydia, obviously resulting in blindness for koalas. If we bring it back to a human setting, the public health burden of something like chlamydia, just in terms of sheer costs alone or medical costs for those who have to go visit physicians' treatments, what is the scale? So the scale is huge and it's very hard to measure. So we haven't actually been able to accurately measure the full scale. Uh, I think I've heard thrown around something like $131 million for testing and treating the frontline primary infection in Australia. In Australia. Yeah. That's just in Australia. But it's very, very hard to measure the pelvic inflammatory disease, ectopic pregnancy, tubal infertility that might result in IVF treatment. All of those factors are really hard to measure because not only do they cost dollars in terms of the public health and the you know, private health solutions to those. But because they're caused by more than just chlamydia, it's hard to match how much of that is due to chlamydia. And we don't actually record those very accurately in Australia. So it's very hard to measure even how much of that is going on. The other things we can't measure, though, is the social burden. So we can't measure the social burden of being off work with severe pelvic pain. We can't measure the social impact of losing a fallopian tube due to an ectopic pregnancy and losing that pregnancy. And it's really hard to measure the social impact of infertility and needing assisted reproductive technologies to conceive. We know it's very impactful on those women and those couples involved to discover they're infertile for whatever reason. But it's very hard for us to measure the impact that has on our society. But no doubt for those individuals, that's a significant impact on their life. Moving forward from this point and kind of mapping out those different roll-on effects that chlamydia might cause, what do you see as the priority? Is it to get all those details or is it an emphasis on things like treatment for the scarring that's as a result of that? Where do you, how do you kind of map this all together? I guess we'd, we'd probably both have different answers to that. Mm. For me, I think it's really going to be at that primary health intervention. So one of my things that my lab work on is improved treatment. So I think having a different chlamydia-specific treatment developed so we can treat the chlamydia specifically and that treatment also immediately dampen that immune response as well as clear the chlamydia, so that's no small ask, is the best intervention we can have if we don't have a vaccine. And I think that we have to prioritise that primary health prevention, but we have to start looking at who's at risk and how we can target those individuals better. I'm not sure that all of our efforts right now in that primary health setting as reaching the most vulnerable people where the highest risk is. So for me, number one is still what we're doing now, but do it even better. But secondly, in my lab, a focus is developing better treatment that we hope will improve treatment success rates and uh, decrease the, the pathology as part of that new treatment package. What do you think, Gary? So from my point of view, my interest is much more in the fundamental biology of why and how chlamydia gets into a cell, what it does inside that cell. Uh, from a public health point of view, the best thing you can do to treat chlamydia is not get it in the first place. Uh, so I think there's much more that can be done in terms of education and similar to the HIV ad campaigns uh, in the late 80s, early 90s were very effective in Australia. One important thing to say about Gary's comments about the Grim Reaper ads in the 80s, is it's true, the Grim Reaper ads did lead to an increased condom use or a decreased sexual promiscuity, but there's lots of problems with that message, right? So that's really marginalising. The ads actually implied that anyone could get it, so there was a little girl with a bowling ball rolling at her. <laughs> um, and so one of the things we, in the chlamydia field and in sexual health generally, we're really aware of is these are diseases of generally marginalised people. They're diseases of people who have different sexual identities often. That's where there's often higher burdens or young people from poorer backgrounds. And so Whilst we want to increase the public health messaging around you know, safe sex and using condoms, we also need to be really careful not to increase the marginalisation. And so I certainly wouldn't advocate going back to a Grim Reaper-style ad for chlamydia. Absolutely <laughs> not. Um, but I think that there is, you know, we can make ground in, in sexual empowerment. You know, there's good condoms out there. There's tons of them. There's great lubes. You can be safe and still have really good sex. 
So maybe we could think about messaging that way. Maybe we should have, you know, instead of have a Grim Reaper, we should have like condom men that in fact are already the um, Queensland Sexual Health Service mm-hmm. and the Aboriginal Medical Services have. And just talking about you can have good sex, you can use libs and condoms and you can be safe. Mm. Um, it has to be very much targeted to these, yeah. these groups, I think. And to something I feel really is important is the discourse that follows. And so we were just talking about, you know, the Grim Reaper ads and the HIV virus. Today, HIV is not the death sentence that it used to be and is in fact manageable. And there are some therapies in place to whether or not you're infected with the virus, manage it or make sure that you do not become infected with it. Do you see a parallel in terms of what we know about HIV and how far we've come, but we still have a way to go in understanding and treating chlamydia? Absolutely. Sorry. Sorry. So, I mean, it's interesting to to particularly see the HIV, how the lowering of the consequences from death to being, you know, maybe an inconvenient change in behavior and taking a regimen of of treatment has, you know, that has changed how people are approaching HIV positivity. I guess chlamydia has always kind of been at that level anyway, because the consequences of chlamydial infection by and large are invisible or at least delayed, extensively delayed. Um, it's worse for women. It's much seems to be much less of a consequence for men. So there are there's some interesting parallels there. I mean, the the good thing about chlamydia, despite the fact that it's so prevalent, uh, is that it doesn't generally doesn't tend to kill you, which was always the big deal with 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 HIV. And what do you think? Uh, absolutely, I think there's lots of parallels. I think we and the, it also parallels, as you said, with the public health messaging around. You know, you can have sex. You can. We can support you making your choices and try and implement the safest possible options for you. And even with men on prep and you know pre-exposure prophylaxis, there's much more proactive, more regular screening of those communities and and to try and keep down the STI burden. So there's lots of parallels. There's an increase in understanding. I think chlamydia is actually a little quite a ways behind HIV. Not just in the public health stuff and the treatment and testing and you know the culture around it, but also actually we just we actually understand a lot less. The HIV research field has been amazing in how much they understand about how the viral operates, uh, and you know it's just as hard to work on as chlamydia. But we've we've kind of been really challenged in the chlamydia field to make the kind of grounds that some of those other fields have made in understanding their pathogen. And it's really it's burgeoning right now, isn't it? It's really exploding. Mm-hmm. Our understanding of chlamydia, our understanding of the human host, the genotypes, the genetics of the host that's being infected, the types of pathogenesis, all of that is really increasing. But I think we're quite a way behind some of the other fields in terms of our biological knowledge that translates into those those kind of new treatments and those new practices. And again, I, th- I agree with Gary that also because it's perceived to have much lower consequences because a subset of the population have those severe consequences, but they don't feel imminent. They're a long way off and you'll never know if that was why, if that was you. It's a harder message to sell. Uh, but I think it's really important and, and I think people are more aware of it now. The big difficulty with chlamydia as a object of research is that it is a bacteria and most bacteria that we study in the lab uh, we can spread them out on, on agar plates, we can grow them in liquid culture, we can manipulate them, we can introduce DNA uh, to to take genes out, to add genes in, to tag genes um, with fluorescent markers so we can track what they're up to. We haven't been able to do that with chlamydia. Because it's an obligate intracellular, we can only grow it inside another cell, inside a human cell in tissue culture, which has really slowed it. And until very, very recently, we haven't been able to do what we call transformation, which is basically introduce other DNA fragments to be able to manipulate the genome to understand what things are doing inside there. 
most uh, bacteriologists have been doing since you know the 40s, 50s, 60s, and chlamydia has only been able to do this. The chlamydia field has only been able to do this in the last uh, four to five years. Wow, right. Uh, so we've got this backlog of 50 years worth of frustrated researchers who are now <laughs> finally being able to uh, start to tinker with this and take it apart and start to understand why this thing causes disease in the way that it does. If only they could see you now. Yes. Uh, that's right. I'm just putting in a disclaimer that I haven't been working on it for 50 years. No. <laughs> and neither is Gary. Not me. But, you know. Not, me. Not, not a two years difference. <laughs> Willa Houston, Senior Lecturer in the School of Life Sciences, and Gary Myers, Associate Professor in the I3 Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's it for Think Health today. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe to us. We're available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Health. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>